0: Thank you. If you don't trust your neighbours, if you don't trust the people that are in government and and you don't trust (laughs) your, your institutions around you, well, you've got a really broken society that's just not cohesive and capable of transformation.
1: Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Moments of Clarity is a podcast that aims to energise and inspire positive change through conversations with some incredible people. My guest today certainly fits that mould. Rebecca Scott is one of the most driven, compassionate, and innovative community leaders I have had the pleasure of meeting. Beck, along with her partner Kate, co founded Street, a social enterprise that works to help end youth homelessness and disadvantage. Street offers disadvantaged youth aged 16 to 25 a supported pathway from the street to a sustainable livelihood. The success of Street is incredible. Since 2010, Street has trained and supported over 800 young people and helped serve meals and coffees to over 2 million customers. This is only the beginning, with the goal to help a young person every single mealtime by 2022. That's 1,095 people each year. What drives somebody to make such an impact? What lessons can we learn from someone who has absolutely aligned their actions with their values? I was honoured to have Beck share her journey with me. Beck and I discussed social enterprise as a model for positive change, the systemic issues we often face in society, the importance of trust, the power of our decisions, our need for belonging, why diversity matters, and what our future might look like through the lens of an optimist. We also discussed Beck's personal journey about coming out as queer in a conservative family, as well as many other experiences and beliefs. If you would like to find out more about Beck, you can visit street, There you will find countless links and stories about Beck and her work. As always, I cannot thank you enough for listening to Moments of Clarity. I appreciate you providing feedback and sharing the podcast with your friends and family. And now, without further delay, I bring you Rebecca Scott. Hello Beck, welcome to Moments of Clarity.
0: Thanks very much, Matt.
1: How have you been? We spoke a little bit off air about the end of the, uh, I guess, lockdown and, and the, the major effects of the pandemic for us personally. How are you going now that it's on the on the back end of that, hopefully? And how did you go during the the crisis? How did you go in lockdown yourself?
0: Oh, look, it's all been a bit surreal, to tell you the truth. I'm still very much working from home. So I'm, you know, perched on the end of the, you know, kitchen table. Uh, I don't have a kind of separate study or anything like that. So, so it still feels like I'm very much in lockdown, I guess, you know, from the way that I'm working to be honest look i think street you know the organisation that i run is a long long way from you know from bouncing back you know sadly we're in one of those industries in hospitality that's been very very badly affected so there's not going to be you know there's not going to be a bounce back my my sense is it'll take years to get back to where we were as an organisation so so in that sense it's been you know a fairly yeah a, a fairly full on 3 months but the other side of that i guess is that you know entrepreneurs never sit around wondering what the future is going to look like they always try and design the future so i've jumped in kind of boots and all from kind of right from the very start of the pandemic and you know that that very overused word of pivoting we've been pivoting fast uh but but also trying to do some really exciting you know new long-term strategic work so you know every crisis also brings a whole heap of opportunities and and that's that's where a lot of my energy has been going
1: oh great yeah that's it's obviously difficult to hear about the hospitality industry affected so badly and we know that so many young people and people that are probably less secure than than most actually work in that industry. So it would be a really tough time for those jobs to be, you know, so badly affected during this pandemic.
0: Yeah, yeah. I actually, sorry, Matt, I actually feel like we've got a double hit in a way because obviously as a social enterprise, you know, all of our 11 hospitality businesses exist to do good and their training and employment you know, uh, enterprises for young people who really need a hand. So, first of all, we got the first hit that we had to close those sites and, and which meant that, you know, we couldn't have our young people in training with us. But also, too, you know, hospitality is really one of those industries that's like the United Nations. You know, when you walk into street, I think we've got staff from over 20 different cultures from around the world, and many of those people uh, just haven't been eligible for job, you know, job seeker or job keeper because they might not be Australian citizens. So I think hospitality is one of those industries that that is really, you know, causing a lot of heartache. And not to mention that it's often a highly casualised, you know, industry. So so you've got kind of layers of vulnerability for people who are working in it, and we've, we've certainly been battling with that as well.
1: I know I'll introduce you in the pre-show, but what is STREET and what is a social enterprise? I'll
0: probably start with your second question about what is a social enterprise. And it's an organisation that uses a business model to, to bring about social or environmental change. And if you were to then talk about the organisation, you know the, the people who ran those, Social Entrepreneurs, uh, I guess you would say they've got a you know a business brain and a and a social heart. So we're hybrid organisations where we don't look like traditional charities. You know we're doing the work that charities would do, and in in fact we are a registered charity, but we we operate businesses as the the engine to, to do that change. In the case of Street, we're a hospitality social enterprise, or actually I'd say more we're a, we're a food system social enterprise. So. In this last decade, we've built uh, 11 hospitality social enterprises. So that's kind of cafes and an artisan bakery and a coffee roastery and a catering company. But particularly in this next decade, we'll uh, we'll broaden that and, and very much be in food systems where our young people will also be training and employing with us in horticulture as well.
1: Yeah. So there is a bit of a movement in the social enterprise world. Is it a fairly recent business model or or charity model? And do you see it growing and growing in the future? What do you see as the hope for social justice and moving towards a better world and how social enterprises can play or what role social enterprises can play in that building of a better world?
0: Look, my guess is that social entrepreneurs have existed for tens of thousands of years I I can't see that they haven't not you know essentially people that are working you know using industry and and you know whether or not that be bartering or you know doing things to to service their community and 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 building kind of the commons I guess I would say so I I can't imagine that that it's a new concept at all certainly even if I look at you know Australia I'm, I'm quite interested in some of the kind of early history of Melbourne and you know, one of the amazing entrepreneurs who was here early in Melbourne in, in the 1800s, a guy called Edward Cole, you know, if I if I read now, that the, the label of social entrepreneur wasn't being used back then in the 1800s for, for people like him. But when I read his story, which I've done, you know, it, it's very much a story of a, of a social entrepreneur who built the world's biggest bookstore, which is, you know, which would have been in the Bourke Street Mall, you know, of Melbourne. Melbourne, if it existed today, the world's largest bookstore, but his reason for doing that was, you know, world peace. And the more he could educate people and share knowledge, the more he believed that people would would have an appreciation of each other, no matter where they were coming from or what religion they were. So I I can certainly see a long, long history of people um, that have been doing, using business models to, to affect social and environmental change. Having said that, I, I would say that you know when I arrived in Melbourne a decade ago, it, you know I, I felt like I spent the first half an hour of every conversation explaining what a social entrepreneur was to you know, to people. So there's certainly been a certainly a, a very big jump in. At least understanding of what a social enterprise is at the community level and and from consumers i think so we're certainly i think having you know it maybe it's maybe even a resurgence you know if i think about the cooperative movement that's gone before us all of that was social enterprise activity so i I think maybe we're just using different terminology for different times Um, but what's been lovely to see is a you know a really big growth of the sector you know this last decade in particular
1: For sure. I think what I've noticed personally is that there is that willingness to talk about business and business models and working towards making a profit for good and sort of using the system that we currently have to affect real, authentic, positive change for people rather than adding the, well, we, we once had the charity aspect, which is still there, that there are people that give up time and give up so much of themselves to completely sacrifice everything to put into something. And that's, you know, more that that charity or that, you know, throw a name out there like Mother Teresa, you know, that idea yeah. of putting yourself somewhere and, and uh, dedicating your entire life to a movement. And then there's also others that want to change the system and, and remove, completely remove sort of that capitalist ideal from society. But the, the thing, the beauty about social enterprise is that it seems like a really plausible and, and authentic, once again, to use that word, authentic way to affect as much change as you can without trying to change the entire system, to use the system for good. So I guess what I'm trying to ask yeah. is how did you realise, what was the step in realising that you could make a difference using the social enterprise model?
0: Look, a couple of things, I guess, they're starting at probably a more theoretical level, Matt. One of the things that really you know has always struck me that you know, the scale of the things that we need to change in the world are too big to expect our governments to be able to solve those issues by themselves. Uh, And when I say governments, of course, governments are an extension of of the population. You know, we give our taxes that go to the government that then distribute that money where they see the need. But, you know, the really complex problems that we're trying to solve are way bigger than the scale of government. And, And to be honest, often are more, they they need a a higher level of innovation than governments are often able to show. So part of my frustration really was seeing that governments often follow, not lead. Um, And what we often don't get is is very good holistic um, problem solving. So those really complex problems, you know, often I don't think governments are, are that good at solving because, you know, things get very siloed. And I've spent a decade, it would be fair to say, talking to a heck of a lot of, you know, ministers and and politicians and and government bureaucrats and often, you know, hearing things like, well, an organisation like Street is a square peg in a round hole. We we don't fit neatly into any category and, and often governments, you know, get very stuck in their own silos, I think. And the same I would say is also the case often with the charity sector You know, if I think about the kind of young people that come to street, those young people have come in crisis and they may have come from, oh, look, it might be 10 different directions. They might have been referred to us uh, because of their homelessness. They might have been referred because they're in the juvenile justice system or because they've got a uh, mental health issue or they've come from detox because of their drug and alcohol addiction issues. It's not uncommon at all for a young person to arrive on our doorstep with five or six or even ten different organisations and caseworkers attached to them. So this really fragmented, siloed, you know, service system that hardly ever takes a person and says, let's look at you and the challenges and barriers that you've got, you know, in totality and try and work out a solution that's that works for you. But also let's look at your hopes and dreams for the future. Not let not let's just kind of put you in buckets of hardness or you know, pathologizing you. But what do you want? What are you dreaming for the future? And and how do we bring all the parts of the system together to, to give you, you know, to, to help you achieve those hopes and hopes and dreams? So I, I guess part of it was really seeing. What you got in a social enterprise model is you got a freedom to innovate that you often don't get when you're highly reliant on government funding. So I, I think what often happens in in trying to address you know social issues is the tail wags the dog. You know the government will give money in a certain direction, and and then you know that work happens in that direction. But everyone's trying to squeeze into the you know into the round hole that's been built by by the funders. But what happens, I guess, is when you generate your own revenue streams and those revenue streams are generated through the general public who are buying goods and services from you, you get to try things a different way. You know, you, you get to innovate and you get to try different combinations of things and of course, it's, it's you know, far more complex running a social enterprise than just a, a charity in the same area because you are having to build businesses and those businesses are complex things to build and often there's incredible tensions in these kind of organisations. But I think with it comes not only kind of an innovation kind of capability and and a freedom, but also what comes with it is this incredible sense that the general public is part of the change process with you. They're not just giving their their hard-earned tax dollars over to the government and and it goes into a black hole, or they're not giving a donation to a charity and they're hoping to goodness that somewhere along the way the social change happens, they're in there with you and they are invested. And what happens, I think, when... When the community gets invested with you is a is a special type of magic. So, you know, we've we've sold nearly it, it'd be close to three thousand meals and coffees now over the the last ten years, and that's you know that's customers up close and personal to social change. So, you get a really different sort of engagement, I think, in a you know in a social enterprise, which which is really exciting.
1: I think the the big thing there is community as well. That the idea that often governments or, or services look at things on paper, you know, the statistics, the data, the the money that's going out, how much we've got to give, how many grants are coming in, you know, that are written for a select amount of money or a select amount of, you know, federal, state, local grants that, that are willing to be given out. But they often miss the point, which is that who's on the ground that's actually benefiting from this uh, beyond yeah. paper? What are the stories of those personal, the personal stories of those people that are that are there with amazing hearts and so much to give. And, and it's not just about helping people for the sake of allowing us to have a slightly better literacy rate or life expectancy rate, but it's yeah. actually to, to pay, I guess, to look forward to a, a much brighter future where these people that have limited opportunity and w- wherever it might be are able to thrive and then actually create a better world and it starts to blossom and actually starts to, to really exponentially grow from there.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting point, Matt, because one of one of the things that's interesting is if if we go to the community and we ask the question of who do we expect, you know, who does the community expect to solve social issues? And that question is asked every single year by the Edelman Trust Index. So they do a you know enormous global trust research. And one of the questions is, or a number of the questions are related to who should who should solve um, social problems. And when you ask that question, uh, there's you get really interesting insights into what people feel about. Who's best placed to to solve social problems, but who they also think have got the capability to solve them. And so, if you take for if you ask that question, for example, of of people and say, well, who should do it? They'll, they'll say, well, we have very strong trust in business uh, and the capability of business. So they get so business gets a tick for capability, but get, but it gets across for ethics so business is trusted to get shit done but not trusted to act in the interests of the community and solve you know solve social issues if you ask the question of government the um the community will say government has neither the capability or the ethics which is very very sad kind of state of affairs if we're thinking that kind of globally about our governments if you ask that question, uh, well, what do you think about the media? There's a there's once again a, a low level of kind of trust in media. If you ask the community about um, nonprofits, uh they will say they have a low capability but very high ethics. So you get this real tension in, in who, who we expect to, to solve these problems. And I'd like to say that, you know, there's not a question in that, in that you know, global research about social enterprises, but I would like to think that maybe what we've got is this unique opportunity that sits in the Venn diagram right at the very, you know, the centre of all of those organisations that we're seen as, you know, we're seen because we're running businesses, we're seen as capable, but because we're also nonprofits and we're driven, you know, we have missions that, that are for, to do social and environmental good. We're also seen as ethical. And in a in a world where we we trust very few people anymore, I, I think we've got this preciousness that we should never squander. You know that social capital that you get when you when hopefully you have both you know capability and ethics in there. I think that puts you know puts organisations like ours in a really unique position, whatever we're doing, whether or not it's engaging the general public to be part of that, or we're we're looking for investment and people to buy our goods and services.
1: So in a way, it's it's changing the incentive that we're led to believe in our own life. I, I guess the incentive in growing up is that you're going to find a good job, make some money and be able to support your family or, or that you're going to be able to donate a little bit here. But really, it's about the holiday and it's about the car and it's about the home and and it's about all of that. That people are led to believe, and I know that 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 is changing a little bit. That narrative of the picket fence and and you know the the nuclear sort of life is is changing um, from the outside. But we're now in a position where we know that most people actually don't get to achieve, and and even when they do get to achieve on that level, they they've achieved everything based on the incentives that they've been fed. But we we do find that there are higher rates of anxiety, depression, addiction, suicide. All of these things are growing in our society that is apparently getting richer. And this incentive has failed us. So you mentioned trust. You mentioned ethics. But you also mentioned that business can get shit done. But many times business is incentivized by profits and and stakeholders that are Mm -hmm. monetarily invested.
0: Yeah.
1: What does a a social enterprise do or what could a world full of business that changes its incentives actually look like? What would be the kick that we need as a society to start actually getting behind a change incentive Mm. to make sure that these businesses that are doing great jobs in getting shit done can actually move in a more ethical manner?
0: Look, I think it's a really good question, Matt. And one of the... One of the questions really is around what does what what's the future that we want for the long term? and i'm I'm really interested in saying, well, how would we make sure, for example, that the decisions that we're making right now in the middle of the pandemic not only service world during that pandemic, but also, you know, understand. For example, that we're we're not just facing one crisis right now. We're t- we're facing two crises. We're facing, you know, we, we have a nested crisis. We have a pandemic that's in a way bigger crisis of the climate crisis. And so we know that that if we make good decisions now during this pandemic, we can be doing long term strategic work as well. And so, if I take you know the the industry that I'm in or the system that I'm trying to shift, which I would say is the food system one of the reasons why i'm so passionate about it as a as a system is because we know for example that to to get an enormous amount of drawdown of carbon from you know from the atmosphere and to get back you know get the world back into the safe zone our food system and our relationship as as a as a you know society to food is so critical to our survival as, spe- you know, as a species and also the survival of, 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 you know, the rest of the species on the planet with us as well, remembering that we're only, you know, one of many, many, many millions of species. So if you just take the food system, for example, those little decisions that we make every single day, not a, you know, every three times a day, whenever we're opening our mouths and putting something into our mouths, those personal decisions that we're making of what to put in there when you aggregate those decisions across across your own life you know you're going to have 85,000 meals across your life so you know yes it might not matter if you have this one as a fast food meal you know supporting a multinational giant that doesn't have ethics sure one in 85,000 doesn't matter but but actually the aggregation of those decisions that you've made across that lifetime really matter and when you start to to amplify those across you and your household and your community and your, your state and your world, actually those things really matter. So those tiny little aggregated decisions that we make every day in life are the sum total of our lives actually. So I'm really interested in what does it mean for us to kind of get people understanding that the decisions that they make every single day and all of those tiny little seemingly insignificant decisions matter. And they matter when they're aggregated across your life and actually everyone's life. And, you know, the sum total of change that we need is the sum total of, of, of those micro decisions. And one of the things that I see really repeatedly is, you know, I hear people say things like, oh, you know, those evil corporations or those, you know, bad companies that are doing this or bad companies that are, you know, making these awful decisions that, you know, to, to destroy the environment, but those bad companies don't exist if they don't have customers. You know, we've got the control. You know, if, if you don't like what a company is doing, for God's sake don't support them with your money. They only exist because we buy shit off them. So if we don't if we don't like those companies, if we if we, you know, if we go through a royal commission, you know, for the banking sector in this country and we we're shocked when we see the banking practices and and the lack of ethics in our major banks and we get to the end of that and we, we've been disgusted but we haven't changed banks, well then who are we to blame? We, we, we can't blame, we can't say oh well the regulators should have done more or the shareholders should have done more, actually those decisions rest with us. So I'm really interested in, in what does it take to get people realising that, you know, the political is personal and, and and all those things that we expect of our politicians, we can't expect them of our politicians or our companies unless we're actually doing those things ourselves. So I'm, I'm always going to be a ground, you know, grassroots, ground-up, radical innovation happens from from below from from people not from above because you know we we haven't seen the changes that we need to make happening from above and I don't think realistically probably that's ever been the case I think I think it's movements of people aligning their values with their actions and and starting to aggregate that as as communities and as you know groups and clusters of people that change the world so I guess that's where I'm spending my effort to try and get people understanding that, you know, that cognitive dissonance, you don't have to put up with that. If it doesn't feel like, you know, your life, the things that are happening in your life, uh, you know, align with your values, well, change some you know, stuff.
1: Just that that ending there became um, really optimistic and I can sense that and I know that you you, you would be an optimist and we'll go into that a bit later on because I want to delve into the muck a little bit and into the grief and into the despair and into the the hardship because I think a lot of the time we feel it and we often listen to and hear people that are doing, you know, great things and have, have made changes and it seems like, oh, they're doing that now and it must be easy. But w- was there a time in your life that you found that you were going with the flow and just constantly banging your head against the wall, constantly frustrated and, and real, and, and sort of almost hopeless. Did you ever get to a stage where you felt that in your life?
0: Look, I'm probably pretty lucky in that dispositionally, I'm incredibly optimistic. I, I have a very large well, what my what my lovely wife Kate, you know, Kate's a clinical psychologist, and Kate would say is an internal locus of control. You know, uh, essentially, I have a deep sense of agency, so I can I can get in and change the things that don't feel like they you know they're working for me. So, so in that sense, I, I feel like um, you know I was hardwired as a person who takes action, and also to very very happy to stand alone. So I you know I don't need to. Feel like I, I have to kind of go the same way as other people. So, so I guess I, I'm incredibly lucky to have been probably dispositionally um, lucky, or you know, personality lucky, but also kind of coming from a family where there was a very strong sense of responsibility to the greater whole rather than you know than to to, to kind of personal wealth. So, I, I've you know, I was raised by two parents who don't have a materialistic you know bone in their bodies. And maybe a couple of times during adolescence, you know, I was a bit embarrassed that we were the daggiest family with the oldest car and the, you know, tiniest house, all those things that you may be a little bit aware of when you're, when you're a kid. But I'm phenomenally grateful for those things now. And I'm sure that, you know, my beautiful son will, will have all those same embarrassments because... You know, we, we live very, very simply and try and do very low footprint living, you know, which isn't always the case in a community. So I, I guess in that sense I think I'm very lucky. I have, however, been, you know, I've tried to solve complex problems in different systems. So I've been, you know, I was at the CSIRO for a decade before starting Street. I've done a lot of um, volunteering of my time in nonprofits. profits and, and so I guess what I've seen is different ways of trying to address problems and and I've seen the pros and cons of those different systems and, and I guess, you know, I would... Probably say that where I've banged my head most frequently against walls and probably the most bruises that i've ever had on my head from banging my head um, would be for government street to this day has has had less than one percent of government funding across its first decade. Uh, whilst we've saved well over, you know, $10 million of of direct costs to, you know, to government through our work. So, you know, we know, for example, from, you know, loads of research, we're we're passionate researchers, and so we know from research that when a young person on average comes to street, they're costing um, the government about $50,000 in direct services. So that would be homelessness, you know, homelessness services and drug and alcohol services and juvenile justice and um, we have a very, very accurate, um, a, a essentially a tool that helps us um, map, the, you know, the exact costs of, of young people in the system when they come to us. And for some young people, those costs can get up, you know, far higher to $100,000 know, $100, a year, um, particularly young people who might be coming through the juvenile justice system. You know, those costs get very high when, for example, you've got, you know, young people in and out of the prison system. We get such a pitiful amount from government, even though I would say that we're we're shifting, you know, a complex social issue for them every single day, and that that constant, you know, we don't quite know where you fit. We scratch our head. We love what you're doing. You know, I've I've, I've often thought for all the ministers that have traipsed through street over the last decade if I had a dollar for every time a minister came and did selfies, you know, at street, I'd, I'd have more money than we've ever got from them. There's, there's nothing but love on social media and excitement and, you know, lots of things of, you know, lots of, lots of social media when they visit us, but it, it really translates through to ever being able to um, get funds through that system. Now, you know, on one hand, I, I know I know from you know the international academic research that the more reliant that any organisation is on on government, the more you know fragile they are. So I know there's a vulnerability that comes with um, you know substantial government funding, and also to, like I said earlier in the conversation, I think often for for. Um, charities and non-profits you know the dog the tail can wag the dog dog so it's critical I think that you know that you if you're going to try and solve complex social problems as a social enterprise that you you know great if you can get some government funding but you don't become so reliant on it that you end up changing the way you do your work um, because of that but yeah I, I am still highly frustrated I think we have seen A phenomenal lack of leadership across most levels of government when it comes to social enterprise. Um, Our federal government has been utterly missing in action for the last decade. The state government of Victoria, we've seen some great stuff in this last two years um, which has been really exciting. So social procurement, procurement work in particular with the state government. But we could go a lot, lot deeper on that. And, yeah, probably we're starting to see some okay stuff happening at local government level as well. But, I, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's going to be people that shift governments, not the other way around, unfortunately. I
1: guess there's so many heads to this this monster, this bureaucracy that we have, and, and there's so many good things about it and so many levels of things that we we like. We like our safety. We like our safety nets. We like our you know, crossing of the T's and dotting of the I's when we're moving forward with something. But it oftentimes, it does limit us in what we can do. I guess when you said a lack of leadership, is there a lack of leadership because of the leaders having their hands tied because of a system that's failing us? Is it because of a value set that's missing? Is it because success is incentivized by doing things that are based on personal gains from people or even, you know, people that have more moneyed interests? Where is the vacuum here? Is it a vacuum in in values? Is it a vacuum in people like us that, you know, can march on the streets or start a social enterprise or, or use our money wisely? There's a vacuum somewhere. So where do you see the i guess the source of this vacuum
0: or everything that you've mentioned is an issue um, if I could change one thing, though, uh, um, I mean, obviously, one of the incredible frustrations is is that any idea that gets put up by, you know, any colour of government, or you know, gets shot down. So, so everything gets politicised so rapidly that, the, you know, caring for the environment is seen as a leftish issue. Well, hang on, it's a whole-of-world issue. I mean, it's ridiculous to to have a whole heap of issues that can't even get discussed out loud because they get politicised the second that they get put up. So so the, the the adversarial nature of our politics, I think, is just incredibly depressing to watch and, and I'm sure there wouldn't be an Australian who doesn't watch, you know, Question Time and, and you know, put their head in their hands and, and thinking, well, I wouldn't accept any of that behaviour from my children you know, why the hell would we want our politicians to behave like that? So so it's just that kind of partisan nature of politics is just does my head in. But the other thing is, how the heck would we expect long-term, complex, seemingly intractable problems to get solved in short-term election cycles? You know, we, we just do such short-term, PC sort of work. And I understand that for politicians that, elect, you know, election cycle means that you're constantly having to come up with, you know, bright new shiny things to, to get people excited about. And it's incredibly hard to do systemic structural changes um, for politicians. When you make those big changes to structures, you know, often they come with years of pain and, and you need to be able to do such strong storytelling, I guess, um, to, to show that why we need transformation. So, those big kind of macroeconomic changes, you know, that, that we've seen over the years, but but certainly the same with you know with our you know with our environment and with our climate uh, with our climate debate over this last fifteen years. I mean. You know, as a, as a not only a nation but as a as a globe, we've squandered the last thirty years. You know, we've known the science for so long now and and not acted fast enough, obviously. And you know, if I think about that, you know, how how many governments have tried to get up something equivalent of a carbon price to to start to get a shift in in policies in that area? And all parts of politics, all parties, have been so guilty of politicizing the issue. You know, liberal, labor, and green—all I, I, of them have got blood on their hands for for how they have either blocked what the other side have done, or stalled, or internal party tensions and, and infighting within parties that have, have made things stall. So, you know, I'm thinking specifically of you know Malcolm Turnbull, you know, being being knifed inside his party for you know for carbon pricing stuff. So, I, I just think it's it's just such a broken system. I I get excited about other forms of deliberative democracy, for example, and, and how we might be able to start to get the community far more engaged in the political process because, you know, we've got a really, really big problem when our community says... You know, like I was saying earlier, we don't trust that the government has capability or ethics. Well, we've got a really big problem if we think those that those things are true. But what would it take to get our community rolled sleeves up and, and saying, hang on, you know, the, these these policies are, you're, you're gambling with our futures. We, we're going to actually get engaged in this process.
1: So that direct democracy or deliberative democracy, it's funny that you mentioned that because, I'm a teacher and we were learning a little bit about ancient Greece and their direct democracy and although they had many problems of slavery and, you know, only landowning men and, and et cetera, et cetera. But if we can bring, somehow bring this Athenian idea to to the modern age and, well, just to give some context, basically the idea was that you have the citizens that would get together and would would vote on each issue, but there would also be people that were elected into different positions without necessarily having the skills to jump straight into something. So someone would be the minister for um, shipbuilding, but they've never worked on ships before, but it's basically being a leader and a decision maker in that field. And I asked someone about this recently. I said, I actually think that it might be, if we're looking at everything and we're saying that there's a problem with the election cycle, there's a problem with being held to a party or held to account by probably not the majority view of what people would want or, and not on what people actually need. So if we were to move towards, let's say, a jury duty style of government where you've got people that are entered into politics randomly as a society, just as a, yeah. as a, as a, um, a thought sort of experiment here.
0: I think it's an interesting idea and, and one of the things that I like particularly about running a hybrid organisation is one of the the superpowers that you get in these kind of organisations is incredible diversity. You know, when you're running cross-disciplinary organisations, you end up with a whole bunch of people who are solving problems together who would normally not be around the table together. And I think that's where magic starts to happen in my view. I'm a, even though I I guess I would say that I'm a, you know, well, of course I would say I'm a social entrepreneur, but but i would say what i'm probably more interested in is social innovation processes and system entrepreneurship rather than just kind of at an organizational level and one of the things that i think gets exciting is when you bring you know when the people making the decisions have as much diversity as the organi- as the community around them do and it, and going back to your point you know about about politics if, if we look at our political parties, our political parties don 't even remotely apart from maybe the greens but don 't even remotely reflect our community there 's a lot of white men sitting in canberra there 's a lot of people who aren 't sitting at the table there and one of the things that I love about kind of walking through street is it 's like walking through the united nations there 's i think we 've got staff from more than twenty different you know from twenty different nations but what you'll also see is you'll see every colour of the LGBTIQ rainbow. You will see, I think we, we've got at least seven religious believe you know people from kind of represented from at least seven different religious religions in the team. You know, it, it's a very very diverse group of people trying to solve you know complex problem like youth disadvantage. And one of the things that I like about the social enterprise. Sector, I guess, is that it's a it's far more diverse than either uh, certainly than business. So you know we know the statistics around businesses on the whole being run far more you know both at the exec you know at the CEO level and the executive team level far more men in business. It's a very white kind of dominated you know level within within big business. Whereas fifty percent, for example, of all social enterprises are founded and run by women. That's incredibly exciting. If I look at the CEOs across the social enterprises and the people working within them, they are far more like a community is, and so I feel the same with with what you're saying. You know that that idea of kind of jewelry like participation. I, I think you know whenever whenever your community is represented in the institutions and the structures that we build, you know, those structures and those processes and those outcomes will be all the better for that diversity.
1: Why do you think that is? Why would diversity help improve outcomes, do you think?
0: If I think about the gardens, and I'll, I'll I'll go back to food, I guess, if I think about the community gardens that are run across this state, or even just across this inner city. If I take an organisation like Cultivating Community, Cultivating Community are a non-profit who uh, manage most of the community gardens at the big housing estates. They manage 800 community garden plots and I know across those garden plots there are more than 35 language groups spoken. If we were to go into those vibrant, vibrant gardens at those, you know, at any of those community plots. Not only would we hear this kind of sea of amazing languages spoken and and not much English being spoken, but you would also see that those gardens are not just where people are, you know, people are getting their own personal, you know, household food security, but we would see that, that that's where people are interacting with each other. That's where people are building social capital, that's where people are feeling connected to their community. That's where people are getting to interface, you know, right at the garden level to next-door neighbours that are coming from a different, you know, from a different place of the world. And so what happens when we create opportunities for, for people to be engaged with each other and, and up against each other and, and interacting with, with each other on a regular, you know, or even daily or at least, you know, weekly basis magic happens someone said to me just recently that social change happens at at the rate of trust and I think that's really true you know we, we can't expect radical transformation of communities to happen if those communities don't have a deep level of trust in them and if i think about how trust gets formed it gets formed when we interact with each other when we have you know conversations with each other when we when we get to know each other and when when you know those first assumptions that we might have had because someone's got a different skin color or a different religion or a different background or a different you know or a different gender or a different sexuality all of those things come with their own biases, you know, often un- unconscious biases that we have and it's only when we start to have conversations and get to know people that, that those boundaries get kind of broken down. So I guess what I, th- you know, I, I see is that trust building and social capital building happens at the rate of humans interacting with each other on the ground and building trust and and it's from that kind of trust at at a community level, that change happens because nothing can happen if you don't trust your neighbours, if you don't trust the people that are in government and and you don't trust (laughs) your your institutions around you, well, you've got a really broken society that's just not cohesive and capable of transformation.
1: And if there is this lack of social cohesion and lack of trust and institutions are breaking down around us, it is time now to to really delve into what other options there are and I think that conservative politics or conservative ideals is exactly that it's it's a, to wanting to limit change and wanting to ensure that old stable traditional values are upheld but we find yeah, that that's kind not kind of
0: concreting way. kind of concreting in the status quo isn't it you know yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's wanting not wanting change because there's so much invested in in the status quo as it is
1: and and, and with that Australia is changing. I mean, the world's changing. We're becoming much more diverse as a population, as you said. So we really do need to start to understand that togetherness is the only way forward because no matter what you think, there's going to be upheaval when you oppress or leave people out of decision-making or leave people in in poor, marginalised areas. And we look at what's happening in the United States right now with the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that's going on, you know, you see that what damage is done when you keep a people that have so much to give and so much wanton and and love to give uh, uh, marginalised and, you know, they constantly say, no, but we had a black president. You know, there's no racism here, but you've got most of the population in geographical and economic despair in so many ways. How do you think... Absolutely. How do you think that we need to move as Australians to... Try to avoid that here, and also to as a, as a globe as well.
0: I mean, look, we'd be kidding ourselves if we if we thought that there there weren't massive structural issues here as well, and, and obviously one of the you know that the Black Lives Matters. Um, you know campaigning has happened all around the globe because most you know most countries have their version of, of what's happening in in America um, and obviously for our First Nations here we have I mean street operates one, one of our 11 businesses is um, a cafe that we run on the the youth prison campus at um, Parkville so Parkville Youth Justice Centre and Right from kind of the the very first day we opened our doors to young people a decade ago, we've been working, with, you know, a, a significant number of young people, often between kind of thirty and forty percent at any given time, coming through juvenile justice. And you know, we we have to be we have to talk about the fact that you know if we go behind the wall to any of our prisons, there is a skin colour to those who are incarcerated. We have our Indigenous population as, what, 3 or 4% of the population, but 55% of the prison population. But Exactly the same is true of our, of our youth prisons here, that we have a disproportionate number of refugee and migrant young people in those prisons who, of course, make their, their way into the adult prisons as well we know the same not just behind prison bars or through the juvenile justice system or the justice system we know the same to be true of postcodes so we know that there are whole postcodes across this country where we have deep entrenched intergenerational poverty and and that that poverty often has a skin color kind of attached to it so you know I'm perplexed and I guess you know supercharged to try and help address that you know that that is not that is not just a, a, a an you know an issue for for those communities it's it's a it's a, an issue of shame for every single one of us who calls this country home um, we we can't expect to move forward unless we have reconciled as a, as a community we can't expect to move forward unless unless we're taking everyone on that journey with us and And if I think about, you know, when when we moved to Melbourne from Canberra, you know, I I grew up in country New South Wales and it was a very, very white um, community that I, I grew up in. But when I moved to Canberra, you know, I reflected after 15 years of leaving that in 15 years in the national capital of Australia I had never seen one person, one woman wearing a burqa or hijab in the national capital of the country over 15 years I'd never seen one person and I'd mixed across government across charities across business you know so I wasn't I wasn't in a tiny little you know bunker I was mixing deeply uh, across Canberra and I still remember um, arriving in Melbourne and trying to work out where we were going to live and um, starting to look at different suburbs and arriving to, to look at a house in one in the suburb that we actually ended up living in and walking down onto the main street of that suburb and being in, in this melting pot of cultures and, and, you know, probably every third or fourth woman on that street was wearing a burqa or hijab. And I remember Kate and I saying, you know, we had our tiny new little baby with us here and we said, this is the kind of community that we want to live in. We want to we want our son to be raised in a community that's diverse and reflects the diversity of this country, not some kind of little white ghetto somewhere in a in a suburb that that made us feel like we we're amongst you know people the same as us. And so, I think so much of that is around who we see as our neighbors, who we see as the other, and who we see as you know ourselves and and. The second that we have a lot of people in the other, and and what we see are our sorry, what we see our identity as, and tell that identity is not black or white or straight or queer or religious or not religious until it's just human and other human. I think we have an enormous way to go, and it's just one of the things I love, I guess, about building an enterprise where we get to not put all those labels over lots and lots and lots of people we just say hey this is a bunch of amazing diverse people trying to do some amazing you know do some amazing incredible things with a bunch of other amazing people and and you know let's face it that there's not a single person on the planet who doesn't have their own challenges you know yes they might not there's variations on the level of challenges that people people are grappling with but I think every single person is grappling with their own stuff and um, the second that we put lots of people in lots of boxes and we have the people that are the helpers and the people who are the you know need the help, we forget that we're a whole bunch of humans grappling with challenges ahead and trying to do the best that we can at any given time.
1: That common humanity is there and I, I think there's two points to look at. One is the experiment that you look at, suburbs and areas that have lots of diversity people love that diversity every single person in that area that mixes and intermingles realizes that we are very very similar even though that there is a lot of difference with whether it's skin color language religion foods but that becomes the uh, the amazing part of that community and it's usually the places that are most tormented by that that view of people that have never come across people of a different race or a different nationality or a different culture or they're the ones that tend to fear the other
0: yeah Uh, I think it is fear I I mean if I think not so much about race but but certainly around sexuality you know I was was raised in a very very um I I wouldn't say strict but fairly conservative religion um and you know I remember very much you know when when in the in the 80s when AIDS was decimating kind of queer populations and I remember my father saying at the time I was I was a teenager and I remember him saying oh that's God's curse on on gay men and that being just kind of the accepted view that that you know God was cursing people for for their you know sinfulness um, now, obviously, it's fairly hard, you know, it was fairly hard to come out as, <laughs> as a queer in a family that was highly homophobic. But if I think about my beautiful, loving father and the journey that he has been on personally, he still is a man of faith. I am not a woman of faith, but I am, uh, I am, certainly, I am certainly a person of spirituality, but not of, not of religious faith. And if I think about the journey he has had to go over and go through in the last 25 years of understanding and getting, getting to grapple with an issue that was just so, he was so staunchly religious and, and unbelievably homophobic and his own personal kind of journey through that, and you know, I, I would I would say that he, you know, I, I couldn't get a more loving father to, to myself, and a more loving father-in-law to to Kate, and and a grandfather to you know, to our son Will, and and if you ask my father which which of his grandchildren was was being raised probably in the most loving family i think he would undoubtedly say it's in our family not you know not the other families of, of my nephews and nieces and so i think he's i think he's just one example of someone who who the only way that he that, that those attitudes have changed it's because he was confronted with them it was it was his daughter was someone right you know someone who was dear to him and he loved dearly who who was confronting those very entrenched attitudes that he'd had across a lifetime and i think most of us have a version of that you know maybe maybe they're not quite so extreme but most of us have some level of that same sort of prejudice or bias that's sitting there and the way that we address that is not normally through going through intellectual exercises. It's normally because we meet people who change our minds on those things. We, 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 we you know, And the first person we meet, you know, we have them in our mind as an exception. Oh, they're an exception to the rule. I, you know, I met a such and such person who, you know, didn't fit my mental model. And then you only start to have more and more and more exceptions to that rule because you're meeting more and more people that soon that rule, you know, starts to disintegrate. And, and I think the only way that happens is it is through human contact and through time and conversation and coming also to the table with grace and empathy and tolerance, I guess, You know being prepared to sit through conversations that in those first you know first sometimes for a very long time are going to be deeply uncomfortable because they're going to get to the core of your own personal beliefs and who you see yourself as you know as a person but it's kind of sitting with that uncertainty I think you know that's where the gold kind of comes from longer term as you as you start to to really deeply grapple with something.
1: So, change. You mentioned earlier that change will come from the grassroots. That change will come from us as people. It's the tail wagging the dog is the the wrong way to go about it. That was on a societal level, on a personal level. You mentioned the story of your dad being uh, one of great change. What was the initial reaction of him finding out, or when did you come out to your family? Is a is a question I'd like to ask. And then what was the journey. I'm gonna ask about your journey too, but I'd love to hear about his journey in from your perspective. What was going on there? And would he have possibly ever changed? This is the question for probably the end, (laughs) without having to confront love that he has for mm. his daughter and this love, personal love that cannot be shaken and then this yeah. love for God, but even maybe misinterpreting the message of God potentially. But what, what is yeah. it that, that you recognised in his journey that's helped you realise that change can happen for anyone?
0: I guess I, so I came out at age 24 to my parents, um, or not just my parents, to my whole family. So I'm the eldest daughter with two younger brothers um, that coming out process, particularly in a very religious family, was a was a deeply traumatic one. And I, I came out uh, as with as with many young people when they when they're going through their kind of coming out process. I think many people need to move away from home and from their own kind of family circumstances until they, you know, until they've got the kind of bravery to to kind of explore their sexuality and come out so i don't think i could have come out easily if i'd still been living at home and back in my small community and it took you know coming to a bigger city and when, and that was canberra to to be able to have the distance from the family you know to be able to do that but with most queers you know it's a, it's often quite a common story that you might not have put a label on yourself you might not have kind of identified yourself as queer for quite a long time but but you will know often at a very very young age that, that you're different to most of the other kids in the playground at school so you you may not have been able to describe that but I certainly my first kind of recognition that I was different to the other kids would have been probably three or four so I, I definitely knew that I wasn't like all the other girls around me. And I would have just said at that time, I like hang I like doing what boys do. Um, I, I would have gen, you know, it would have been gendered in my mind. So I, you know, I like I like doing the things that boys do. I I like hanging out with them, I get on with them more, I understand them. And even probably if you'd asked me across my first Maybe even fifteen years. I probably would have said if you'd asked me straight out, "Would you rather be a boy or would you rather be a girl?" I would have undoubtedly said I, I, I was. I should be a boy. So in my mind, I was confusing gender with sexuality. So I didn't have a language for it back then. So I just knew that that the things that I liked, you know, and the people that I got on best with were with, were boys. But it wasn't until, and and I could, you know, looking back, I mean, it's so easy to see that I had crushes on girls all the way through primary and high school. I just, I didn't, what I would have said is I was admiring them and I always wanted to be around particular girls, but I wouldn't have ever, I wouldn't have ever said that, you know, it was a crush or involved, you know, attraction. I would have just said that I was admiring them. So when I finally Fell in love with the first woman that I fell in love with in in my early twenties, and it was and I would have said it was you know it was very clear that it was love, not a crush. It was just um, it absolutely knocked me for six. I, I it was just this. It took so long to piece together all the all the bits of the jigsaw puzzle. And if I go back and read my diary of of that year, that year of you know of kind of coming out, there was a particular day when all of a sudden the penny dropped and I'd been writing in my diary for months and months and months about you know the woman that I had fallen in love with even though I hadn't put those words down and then the day that I actually wrote the words and then I realized what that had to mean there's just there's two pages in my diary that just of the same word over and over and over again that just goes fuck 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 hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times because um just the enormity of that realization was so great particularly having been raised in a highly homophobic highly homophobic environment so so in my mind that was nothing but a deeply negative thing to have realized about yourself when I came out to my family um, it was devastating because I I thought there was a very real possibility that I would never see them again so I made the decision to do it via a letter and I wrote um, a letter and I think it, it was probably about it was probably 10 to 15 pages long and I genuinely thought it was probably going to be the last time I ever had a, a, any communication with my family and what I wanted to do is try and anticipate every single question that they might ask and that I, I had an ability to, to to kind of tell them the answers to those questions because they may never speak to me again, and so I essentially posed the letter as a as a series of dozens of questions that I that I then went about trying to answer for them. And I, I sent. I was living in Canberra, and I sent the letter off by post. And I expected. I, I sent it off on a Thursday. Expect no, sorry. I sent it on a Wednesday, expecting that it would arrive home to mum and dad on the Friday, and that they would then. You know, if they did want any contact with me ever again, they would ring me on the weekend, and I could I could have a you know longer conversation with them um, at home. And what happened is the letter arrived uh, the next day from Canberra to to New South Country, New South Wales, and I got a phone call at work from my mum saying, "You know, Becca, we've just got your letter. Uh, I'm ringing to tell you that we love you. You're still our daughter." can you please, you know, can you please come home? And, you know, that was a, I burst into tears, obviously, um, but couldn't talk to them at work at all about, you know, they rang me in my work office at CSIRO. And then what I did is I drove home that weekend to to go and talk to them and and have the bigger conversation. Sadly, I lost one of my brothers in that process. So one of my brothers um, has never had a relationship with me over the last 25 years. And he said at the time, you know, he was he was only twenty two at the time, and he said, "Oh well, it's you know, you you aren't my sister again, and it would be better that you were a murderer than 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 being gay." Um, So that was probably the hardest thing about coming out. Um, Certainly, there was a you know years and years and years of prejudice that I was in fighting. So, you know, if I counted the probably hundreds and hundreds of hours that I've had in conversation with my with my dad in particular. as he's been grappling with this stuff himself but it's it's been made easier I guess because I've had absolutely wonderful partners in my life and you know my beautiful wife Kate you know Kate has been in my life for for 25 years now and you know she absolutely adores my parents as they adore her so it's been it's been lucky that I've I've had such love in my life from my partners and my family have, I guess, been able to see, you know, the just, yeah, what happy, you know, what happy relationships I've had with, you know, with Kate, but also, you know, my my partner's previous, my female partner's previous to Kate. But, you know, certainly... Certainly the religious community that I grew up in, you know, there were many friends that I would, I would, you know, former friends that I wouldn't have anything to do with now because it's still a very small, closed-minded you know, closed community that I grew up in and and I, I feel like I'm quite distant from, from my past really, you know, the small country town and the kids that I went to school with, you know, I, I have very little to do with that community just because it's, it's just like stepping back in time, you know. It, it's like going back in a time warp um, to a small religious community that I uh, that is just not where I want to be, really.
1: Wow, that idea. So I know that you want to bring about an understanding of everyone in in your work. That idea, the way that you talk about diversity and community, it's about everyone getting to understand each other and and their points of view. Is there a way that you can somehow? I don't know. I know it's it's not for you to reconcile this. It's for them. It's for others to reconcile mm. the the normality of being gay, the normality of being black, the normality of being whatever mm. that is the normal. But we, how do you, with the values that you hold and and probably someone that is so open minded, do you do you wonder how you can open the eyes of people that are so close minded? Is, is that part of something that you? ever try to to work your way through or is it something that you just say you know what it's up to them to find empathy in their time if they can and and otherwise I'm just going to do what I can in my own life?
0: It's interesting it's an interesting question to pose because I guess I I'm not I'm not out there campaigning for you know every person to to accept everyone straight away and and legislating for for compassion and, and tolerance but I'm very I'm very aware that often we can we can package differences under a whole bunch of labels and forgetting that that at the bottom of all of those labels sits our absolutely fundamental need to belong and and to Feel a deep sense of social inclusion, and I'll, I'll give I'll give kind of one example, and it's 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 quite a it's quite a telling example, I guess, uh, at one extreme. So Kate, um, my partner, is a terrorism academic, and Kate uh, did her PhD on really studying. I guess she's a she's a clinical psychologist originally by training, but then went to, to on to do her PhD in really grappling with what what made terrorists and violent violent extremists stop being terrorists? What made them put down their suicide vests and their guns and their their willingness to die for their cause to go on a different path? And her PhD was was groundbreaking what it did is it looked at she she traveled around the world and hunted down a track down hunted is sounds far the wrong word but tracked down a whole heap of terrorists and or, or former terrorists and sat down with them for hours and hours to ask them the question to to try and understand from their personal journeys what made them step away from extremism and She looked at uh, four different groups. She looked at eco-terrorists, Tamil Tigers, neo-Nazis and far-left extremists. Now, really, really different groups of people with very, very different kind of ideologies. And it would be very easy to say, I guess, you know, looking superficially at, at you know, a different extreme you know, extreme belief systems, that it's all about beliefs and it's all about ideology. But one of the, the things that her research showed so critically, I guess, is that for most people, the reason for joining a terrorist group in the first place was not ideology, but it was about connection. It was about trying to find a group of people that you belong to. So you didn't join your local you know eco-terrorist organization because you necessarily wanted to go and blow up shit but you wanted to feel connected to people and the same can be just you know said of people who are in cults or religious groups or or any kind of groups of people that we would say were you know fairly extreme and I think I think the same of you know that's an extreme example I guess but I think the same is true of every person that this fundamental need that we have to feel like we belong in our community and at a very kind of personal level within our organisation we see that every single day we see that that if we we've done a lot of research with our young people over a decade now and we've done both qualitative and quantitative research on what matters to them most and we started out with our mission statement being around helping um, youth you know, stop youth homelessness. So we would have said that we were experts at, at stopping youth homelessness for young people. And after a number of years of research, we went we went back to many of our past graduates and we said, looking back now on your time at Street, what is it that was most precious to you and what did you most gain and, and what was the, the biggest impact on your life? And again and again and again, we found that their their homelessness being stopped wasn't the thing that was most important to them. There were a whole bunch of things that were higher than that. In fact, there, was, there were normally seven things that our young people will talk about having been impacted by street. And of those seven, housing stability and their homelessness being stopped is seven out of seven. So it's the last thing on the list. Um, Number six is the training and employment opportunities they got through the street. But number one, the very top of the list is a sense of inclusion and belonging. And so I guess what I've realised very much over the last decade is that we are so hardwired as a social species, we are hardwired to belong to communities and groups of people to to do things together. We are social creatures. We are we are pack animals. And we have spent, you know, we've we've spent you know millions of years evolving as people who were together. Now, you know, we we would we were never globalized the way. So we're, we're now struggling with what does it look like when we're trying to be a one globe rather than one tribe or one family unit. But we are we are social beings. And the second that we split ourselves apart and give ourselves all of these different identities, whether or not it be through religion or ethnicity or gender or whatever, you know, boxes we put ourselves in, we forget actually that we are all hardwired to to belong whether, and that's, you know, ideology and all of those other boxes don't actually, you know, there's a more core thing that sits at the, at the centre of all of our DNA. And so I just, I guess what I'm, I'm passionate about is what does it take for people from all of those different walks of life to feel that sense of belonging and for us to, as you know, leaders in, in our communities, what does it look like to create inclusive spaces where people come together? and they feel like they belong no matter where they've come from. And I, I, to this day, you know, feel as passionately as I did when I started Street that food is a very, very good equaliser and a very good place to, to start those conversations because I think mag- something magical happens when you sit down at a table and you nourish each other and you're and you take that incredible trust in another person for for another person to to nourish you and it's such a fundamental part of our existence to be nourished that I, I I love that idea of people coming to the table and and us breaking down barriers through food
1: amazing so so well said Beck that whole time I was nodding my head and just <laughs> and and really it's just so true that we we need community we are tribal in so many ways but and oftentimes that hardwired part of us is often put into the wrong places like you you mentioned cults terrorist groups extreme ideals we we tend to often ignore empathy or ignore facts because we we want to feel a sense of belonging and mm-hmm. and as our world and our cities have become more and more isolating, the more that we grow. And yes, we've got our devices, but really we're we're behind our computer, we're behind our four walls and our fence that are getting higher and higher and there's less and less public spaces and and et cetera, et cetera. You, You mentioned food as being a way forward. You've obviously started street. Is there... Ways for people that may not be leaders of their community, people that are at home and listening to this and saying, "Yeah, but what can I do?" Are there questions that you'd ask them to pose to themselves to start trying to answer, to 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 try to shift a mindset of that? I think it was cognitive dissonance you used mm. before, but that that being so tired and being so just ground down by the day-to-day existence of of having to get stuff done. Is the, are there questions and, and and actions that you'd ask people to take place to start to get the ball rolling in their own mind
0: one of the things I love I, I guess about particularly primary schools uh, you know for for people who have primary school age kids that as parents we're often highly engaged in our in our kids, primary schools because we're needing to you know drop them off to school every single day pick them up from school and if that's in our own communities and and often you know we're walking you know within walking distance what that means is where we're mixing with a whole bunch of people that we wouldn't otherwise be mixing with and I'm and I guess one of the things that we've always tried to do as a family is kind of get to know your local community and and hopefully you're already living in a community that's got a, a level of diversity. But I, if I think about, you know, many of the stories that I've heard throughout this pandemic and, and even just my own immediate team, you know, so many of my team members have talked about you know, early in the pandemic, doing things like putting a letter, you know, putting a note in every single letterbox um, along the street and saying, hey, I know I don't know you and we've never caught up, but I just want to, you know, we just want to check as a family that you're going to be okay. We've got a WhatsApp group that's going and if you'd like to join it, please do so. Um, if any, And if any of you are having any challenges or you need someone to duck down to the shops for you, because, you know, you might be, older or immune compromised or you know whatever reason please let us know and and we'll do what we can to help and the incredible stories that have come out of those you know what started as micro micro interactions within a within a street and within a in a neighborhood and and I, you know, people telling me. One of my staff members just told me this last week. Oh, couldn't believe it! You know, I just caught up with drinks with all of the, you know, neighbors that we we now know. We caught up with, you know, with them for drinks. We we're all standing out on the on the front, uh, at the front in the in the street. So we, you know, we, we had, um, you know, socially distanced drinks at the end of the week together and I discovered, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, discovered things that people were doing and, and actually there's some people that are working on some things that, you know, I'd really like to get involved in things that we're doing at Street. and our, And my sense is, you know, that idea of six degrees of separation, if we thought of kind of six degrees of, you know, commonality, I bet that you could have a conversation with any person in any direction and you know it's not going to take six degrees of separation to discover that you actually have something in common whether or not that's we both have kids of similar age whether or not we both like this food whether or not yeah you know, there are so many things to that you discover in a you know in a conversation with someone before you could find at least one thing that is common ground between the two of you and so, of course, not every person in a neighbourhood is going to invite all of their neighbours over to, you know, to come and have share a meal. But certainly it's very, very easy to make something and drop it over to someone and use food as a way of breaking down those boundaries. I do that an enormous amount with our neighbours here. So street, um, street has a very, very beautiful artisan bakery And often at the end of the day, we have, if we have beautiful, you know, sourdough breads that that haven't sold in the cafe, I'll take those breads home and and go and knock, I've knocked on so many doors over the years, um, dropping off sourdough loaves and baguettes and croissants and all sorts of deliciousness to all the neighbourhood, just, you know, just as a way of saying, hey, we're thinking of you, hope you're doing okay, here's a little piece of deliciousness. And I think there's, that's just one tiny example, but I think there's, you know, there are, each family will have their equivalent. You know, at the moment we're growing an enormous amount of our own food in our backyard through this pandemic and we've got hundreds and hundreds of fruit, vegetable and herb plants that we're growing, far more than we're going to need as a family. But the first thing that we did in the pandemic was make dozens and dozens and dozens of herb pots with rosemary in them and my son Will and I made all of those pots together and we've been tending them for the last three months and making sure that each little plant is doing okay and our goal was that once it got to the middle of winter and it was cold we would deliver every person in our street a tiny little pot of rosemary along with a recipe our favorite recipe for that uses rosemary and a and a thank you for you know thank you for being such lovely neighbors and so a tiny thing now that rosemary didn't cost us anything because we've got a great big rosemary bush all we did was was take cuttings from our own rosemary bush and plant you know plant all of those cuttings in a little upcycled tub no effort on our part no cost on our part but just a tiny little act of kindness I guess tiny tiny in its in its magnitude but you start to pile, you know, those those on with, you know, other little acts of kindness and all of those tiny little acts of kindness, all those little things that we do to pay forward, you know, pay forward kindness in a community start to be the difference between being a community that's got social capital and one that doesn't and where we started that you know our conversation was you know trust happening at at, you know at the speed or social change happening at the speed of trust you know all of those micro actions of kindness I think are what make our communities feel like we want to live in them and, and whether or not we feel safe and accepted and we belong so I actually think you know we don't need to do great big radical interventions that are structured I think most of it just starts in our house and in our neighbourhood and with our neighbours um, and there's no science to it. It's it's just micro-kindness that starts to, to happen next door that, that starts to aggregate over time.
1: How do you ensure that your being is looked after, you know, personally? do you, How do you ensure that your values remain at the forefront of what you do and it doesn't have a lot to do with ensuring that you're looking after yourself personally?
0: Oh, look, I probably would say I'm not very good at separating work and all the other parts of my life. (laughs) I I, I tend to be kind of boots and all. So, you know, I I know probably if someone looked from the outside in, they they would say, you know, oh, you work a ridiculous number of hours a week on, on the things that you do. But actually, I would see that most of the things that I'm doing, many of them feel like they're a hobby because I I get, you know, I get so much enjoyment out of my job. And And I know that sounds kind of lame. I know that sounds like an excuse for being a workaholic, but it actually doesn't feel like that. And what I do is I have really different modes of working. So I have my core job, my business as usual job that I try and do in my kind of nine to five sort of job. But then I have what I would, I guess I would call my system entrepreneurship and my um, love of innovation, which I try and give at least one day a week and probably now is probably closer to three days a week that I'm, that I'm giving. And that's, that's where I do all my creative thinking. That's, that's the harebrained stuff awake in the middle of the night playing Tetris in my head, trying to, you know, link things to other things and trying to, yeah, think about, you know, what might Melbourne look like in 2050? And what are the, you know, what are the seeds that we plant now for that long-term sort of stuff? And that's the stuff that gets me really excited. So, you know, I, I certainly have written my own 2050 story, as most entrepreneurs, I, I tend to spend most of my time in the future. So I, I would say entrepreneurs are normally time travellers. You know, we're like Doctor Who. We're, we're rarely actually in a time zone that, you know, that our body, that our physical body is in. Most of the time our mind is in a totally different time, you know, time zone. So I would say that I probably spend, from a thinking perspective, I would spend at least 50% of my time living in the future And that is anywhere from thinking about future projects to setting up collaborations for future, you know, future-based stuff to, you know, hustling, creating new side projects that I think, you know, there might be some interesting ideas that are experimenting and to experiment there with. So so I'd say, you know, normally when I interview someone for a senior position it's Straight Off and ask the question, you know, what's your side project that you've got going down at the moment? And you can tell a lot. You know, if someone hasn't got a side project. Normally, I they're, they're not probably the kind of people that I want to work with. If someone's going, oh, I've been thinking about this crazy thing over here, and I've been experimenting with it. I, I often know that you know within a couple of conversations that we might have, we might have some ideas kind of floating around together. So I spend I spend a lot of time. If you, I've got a tiny little studio beside our house. In another life, I probably would have been a visual artist, um, and so my my studio um, has you know hundreds and hundreds of my drawings and artworks and and etchings and paintings in it. And, but most of that is around using creative practice as a way to unlock kind of creative thinking and, and and the canvas more often than not happens to be one that's, you know, back at street. So 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 the so the entrepreneurial part of me is building things in in businesses, but the creative part of me is using creative arts as the way to unlock that creativity.
1: So what's next on the horizon then, Beck? What is the next step towards that 2050 goal that you you've set that 2050 vision
0: I've more recently been writing the story of 2050 and and what I what I feel like this city is capable of and I've spent you know spent a lot of time in you know in those upcoming decades thinking about what it's going to feel like to be there what it's going to be like to to you know for for my child to be there what it's going to be like for me to be there and I guess I've used a lot of, you know, a lot of science prediction in, in, you know, what what does the world look like just from a climate perspective, for example, and, and what are the things that we need to do now to, to radically alter the trajectory that we're on as a, as a community right now. So if I was to say, you know, where am I putting my efforts in the next, you know, in, in the upcoming decades of my working life, I would say that it's very much trying to get radical Change to transform the way that we our environmental the environmental crisis that we're in. We we so rapidly need system change, and it can't be incremental. It, It it really really has to be radical transformation. So, I guess I'm really interested in what is the role that I get to play in that, and and how might how might the city of Melbourne, for example, be able to to lead in that space? So, what might it look like for Melbourne to be a globally a globally innovating city where it becomes a beacon for other other cities around the globe to take action and, and to to, de, to decarbon our you know our city. So you'll find me very squarely, I think, using the food system to try and bring about that radical transformation because it's the one industry where we, we need to to do the most radical change. So it won't seem so. The work that I'll be doing won't seem like it's. It will hopefully it will feel like a, an extension or evolution of the things that we've been doing, and and also too for me, probably a, a you know going back to my metaphorical and literal roots as a you know as a plant biologist originally, knowing that that natural systems have to be the way that we get not only kind of position ourselves as part of nature that we that we don't see ourselves as being other than nature we are just one tiny tiny part of the of a giant global eco you know s- series of ecosystems so it, it would be I guess to try and get us to feel like as a planet we were at one that, that we weren't that we, we we were treading the lightest that we could and and that we had a you know a deep social footprint but a very light environmental footprint so so you would you would find me still trying to grapple with those things to find the most effective way to to tread lightly and you know tread tread lightly from from a you know environmental perspective but but creating deep connection and, and a deep social footprint you know within the community
1: yeah that donut economics model that kate roweth yeah um, exactly yeah, yeah.
0: And, it's donut and economics exactly
1: in that vision, I, I reflect on my own sort of mindset uh, as you talk, and I, I went to the gloom, muck, darkness earlier, and and you quickly went to the light, <laughs> and and you've done so again with your 2050 vision. You've you've you recognise that there is pain, potential pain ahead. You recognise that there is a cri- climate crisis that we're in the midst of, and that the radical change is needed. But you always quickly shift on what you can do and what needs to be done to ensure that it that the, the positive outcome occurs do you draw your or do you write about that dark 2050 at all that dystopia or do you just recognize that it's there and quickly create that positive 2050 when when you're doing that what's your mindset as you're going about that journey
0: look it's probably taking so I, I haven't explicitly written the dystopian climate fiction version of that i feel like the science has already done that for us so i you know i read a lot of you know anything that the ipcc puts out you know on climate change and where we're up to and and you know what will happen if our traject- trajectory doesn't change so so i, I feel like the dystopia is all, you know it is already very much alive and well there in in the science but i i'm interested in thinking really around the equivalent of kind of acupuncture points, you know things, you know. I don't know if you've ever had acupuncture, but I but I remember the first time I I ever had it. It was it felt felt like this mysterious thing that happened, but but I knew I had I had very bad RSI when I was at CSIRO and a combination of rock climbing too hard as well as sitting on a computer mouse for, for way too long. Um, so those two things kind of meant that I was in a very bad way and, and couldn't use either of my arms for, for quite a long time. And, you know, there was one point, you know, I got to where I couldn't have washed my hair, couldn't have used, a, you know, a knife or fork, couldn't have used a pair of scissors. So So I was actually quite damaged. And this is, you know, this is still in my 30s. So I remember being in quite a dark place then, but but going to going to see an acupuncturist and and um, having an enormous amount of headway after seeing him for quite a long time. But but that that analogy, I guess, of acupuncture needle and and where is it? You know, if you if you've ever had acupuncture, you will know when you know your acupuncturist puts the needle in exactly the right spot and a muscle or a whole muscle group that had so much tension sitting within it instantly relaxes and 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 just the incredible effect that has on other parts of your body and particularly if you're, you you know, you've got some deep injuries there so you seeing the connectedness of those injuries to other part you know your other you know bodily systems and i always think about you know the, my life you know how do you use your life as an acupuncture needle how you know you you only have a tiny, this tiny, tiny little precious life. And you never know how long it's gonna be, but that tiny little precious, insignificant life, I just want it to be as much as I can, you know, the an acupuncture needle that I can in the system that I that I can see. And, of course, I'm going to do a whole bunch, you know, I'm going to blunder along and then there's going to be a whole bunch of things that I wreck as well as, you know, hopefully improve. I'm going to fail at as many things that I succeed at. But I'm just, I'm never, ever going to sit wondering what if. I just, I just am so determined that I am never going to get to my deathbed and go, I wonder if I should have given that a crack. And I never want to die wondering. I want to, I want to know that I tried and if I failed, that's okay, but I would rather fail than not have tried in the first place. And, and there's something that gives you a great amount of hope when you just get in, you start to do stuff. Now, of course, you, you've got to do that in directed, thoughtful ways, you know. It, it, of course, you have to do that evidence-based and, and using you know using ration. You don't just race race out there and you know start inflicting yourself in all sorts of directions. So, so there's a great amount of decision and and care, um, and particularly if you're working with highly vulnerable communities, you know that that gives you so much more reason and and, and um, need for for care. You know that if I think about the young people who have come to street, you know they've often been they have had trauma after trauma after trauma you know the average person is is going to have three or four traumatic events happen across their lifetime but but the average you know homeless person is going to have well between 20 and 30 uh, traumatic events that have happened to them so you are de- when you are dealing with traumatized populations you you need you have such a phenomenal duty of care to those populations And so I guess what I want to be able to do is use energy and rigour but care, always wrapped in a deep sense of care, to just give it a crack, you know, that that I, I, I still think that, you know, the only way we get ourselves out of this deep mess is if a whole heap of us say, you know what, this one little precious life, you know has to mean something and I'm going to try and find other people who believe those same things and, and we're going to do those things together and I think that's where joy comes from you know it comes from finding like-minded people who act together in purposeful ways with a deep amount of care for you know for people and the planet and I just can't imagine doing any, anything but that because it's just, you know, it's the reason I bound out of bed every morning. And hopefully that's going to be the, you know, the case for the remaining 50 years of my life as well.
1: Oh, that's absolutely beautiful and a, a sentiment that we could all, all learn from for sure. Uh, just a couple of almost nitty gritty questions here about homelessness and about if, you know, what is something that you can do when you walk past someone that is homeless on the street or that asks you for money or that, or you watch Filthy Rich and Homeless on SBS and Mm. you're inspired to quickly do something now while, you know, while the tears are in your eyes and not two weeks later when you've forgotten all about it, you know, what what are the the quick steps that we can take to help someone either, you know, that we run across or to try to seek out a a network to start helping?
0: I would always say start with looking someone in the eye and not looking away because the first thing that you have to do is look. And I feel like once you look, you can't unlook, you know, once you see, you can't unsee and you have to, you know, I know the discomfort that there is, you know, the, the incredible discomfort, even if you're working, you know, to, to address these very issues, you are still going to feel a deep sense of discomfort um, when you walk down the street and you see someone who is is doing it tough. Um, that never goes and, and you never want it to go you want that deep discomfort to always sit there because you want it to be you know I, I always think about it as as almost kind of using using you know the disadvantage and poverty and that you're seeing around you like almost like sandpaper against your skin you're wanting to always stay raw to that you never want to get thick skin so you just you, you don't see it so I would say is keep looking and, and and as hard as it is to look someone in the eye even if you're not going to stop and give someone anything or engage with someone in conversation make yourself not look away and the second that you don't look away the second that you see this is a person and a person just like you and a person that you know isn't the other it's things start to change if you can get yourself from looking someone in the eye and not looking away to then the next step of actually stopping to have a conversation with someone or or just saying you know the next step might be you know saying hi or smiling the next step might be okay I'm going to get myself to stopping and having a conversation with someone the next step after that might be you know in that conversation that you 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 know discover actually you know there's something that you might be able to help that person with and I know everyone gets highly conflicted and says, "Hey, you know, obviously someone might have a drug and alcohol addiction, and am I just feeding their addiction?" But there's ways that you can help someone. Most people are going to need food, but they're, but they're also going to know what they what they need. So so asking, you know, having having a conversation with someone and saying, "Look, is there something I can help you with?" You know, I'm, I'm going down to the shops. Can I can I grab you something while I'm there? Um, all of that little those little pieces of kindness kind of add up, and I think you know, having worked now with so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of homeless young people, you know, so much happens to not just obviously, you know, the roof over your head disappearing when you're homeless, but obviously it's one of the most undignified, horrific situations that you can be in to, to be begging on a street or, or to be homeless. So, and I think we've seen that very much reflected in the experiences of those people who have been on that you know, on the SBS documentary. It's the thing that has been just as shocking to many of them has been their sense of their loss of soul and their loss of confidence and their lo- loss of being feeling part of the human race. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the antithesis of that is you know what does it take to start making someone feel like part of the human race? And that's to look upon them as another human and and not look away. And then, of course, you can do all the structural stuff. You know, you can you can rather than band-aiding stuff, you know, you, you can say, well, hang on, who are the organisations that are, that are addressing, you know, the, the root cause of problems and are doing preventative work, not just, you know, crisis work? You know, looking at organisations that you might be able to volunteer with or donate to. There are so many great organisations in our community doing incredible things and I always figure, you know, there's nothing like... You know, finding a local community group and, and you know, starting to roll your sleeves up in your own community to, to address those issues as well.
1: So, Beck, the name of this podcast is Moments of Clarity. And my question at the end of every conversation is what has been a moment of clarity for you recently, or even during this conversation, have you had a moment of clarity recently?
0: For me, it's probably it's coming back to just that sense of connectedness and the and just the hardwiring of us as a species, and that the second the second that we break up everything, or we divide communities, or we divide ourselves into the left or the right, or the straights or the queers or whatever labels that we put there, just the deep you know shattering of communities that we do. And I guess what I'm, you know, though that shattering doesn't happen in great big cataclysmic, you know, events that happen in a community. You know, of course, those things can happen, and a a pandemic, you know, coming rapidly onto a onto a global population is going to create a huge amount of shattering. But I guess what I'm really interested in is how do we use the pandemic as the opportunity to think about the you know to, to rethink about the things that are precious to us what are the things that we've learnt about ourselves and our families and our communities during this pandemic that we just don't want to jettison at the other end that we don't come out of lockdown and and kind of bounce back into business as usual and all of those things that 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 we take the time to write down and reflect upon the things that that have been little moments of preciousness during the pandemic and and we commit ourselves to saying well I'm not going to jettison those things there's going to be some things that 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 are going to become the new normal for me in coming out of it and we know that we're coming out of the pandemic into a deep you know recession that we we've got probably at least a decade where where we have people in our community that are going to be doing it really really tough and so what would it mean for us to start to take those things that we'd learnt during the pandemic and say, what do those things look like as tiny little micro actions in my community right in my hood? I can't, you know, I, I am committing myself right now back to my street. You know, may, maybe, you know, maybe your suburb's too big. But, but if you said, what is, what is making change in my street look like? I bet every single person in this city or all this on this planet could find some change that they could create in their street. And I I guess I'm really excited about. I've used a lot of my time in the pandemic to set up a tiny little social enterprise project with my son Will. He's 12. And our little social enterprise is in trying to help other kids start to set up their own family you know, family growing, so start to do some growing at, at home. Uh, our little project is called Farmily, as uh, in farm family. And, uh, and what I'm really interested in is how do we start to see our street as, as, you know, very much an extension, you know, of our family and what, what might it look like to say over these next three months or over this, you know, next year, what, what would it look like if we did a whole heap of tiny acts of kindness in our street? And it might be even too hard to say our whole street. It might be just, you know, the, the five neighbours in each direction and, and what might kindness look like in, in those households our next door neighbours on one side of us um have been doing it very very tough during this pandemic and and the two the two that live there are alcoholics and they've had a particularly tough um pandemic and we've you know the interactions that we've been having with them are often quite traumatic you know they involve police and neighbours and and violence and all of those sorts of things. And so I think most of us have examples on our own doorstep or very close to our own doorstep where kindness will go a long way. And so I guess what I, you know, I, I guess what I'd like to do is in this podcast is is recommit to, you know, what might kindness look like in my own street and, you know, recommitting to, to using the pandemic as, you know, as the opportunity to, to, to not only kickstart that but to keep that going.
1: I'm so glad I asked that question, which I normally do anyway. But to to get such a, a great answer that really touches to my core as well, because you asked earlier before we started recording, you know what was my purpose behind the podcast, and it really is to have conversations like this to realign and reaffirm my thinking, and hopefully reach other people in the process. But you know, it's it's so easy to to start to wobble a, a bit away from where you want to be going but the fact is that mm. you've committed yourself to being a beacon and to, to creating beacons for people whether that's you know what Melbourne will look like for cities around the world to look at in 2050 or what street looks like to be a a vision for what social enterprises could be or what cafes can be or what it means to be sustainable and to care about people and you just went back to that beacon of kindness right at a personal level that first step is to be a beacon of kindness and love and generosity, and that doesn't only help others; it helps yourself to be to remain true and,
0: and yeah, and stay connected. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know so what what we know from the research in in well being, we know that one of the critical things that our you know that our own mental health. Um, is connected deeply to our sense of connection with with other people, but also in us being feeling like we can give back to our community. So, so you know, it's not just altru- altruism. You know, when when we do good stuff in our community, you know, the the, the benefits very much come back to us. You know, to ourselves as well um and 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 our own you know physical and mental health so you know you're 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 reaping a lot in coming back the other way as well i think you know in these conversations it's it's not you know it's not one one directional altruism it's altruism to yourself as well and kindness to yourself i think
1: absolutely so now that everyone's listened to this and wants to know more about street where can people find out about you about street and about maybe even visiting one of your sites?
0: Yeah, look, we would love that. Um, so certainly online, the best way to find out where all of our various sites are is to visit street.com.au and street is spelled S-T-R-E-A-T, as in eat on the street, because um, we started out as a, as a food cart on, on the street here in Melbourne uh, at Federation Square. So street is um, where you'll find us online. Um, also, please follow us on social media so you'll always kind of get the, you know, the beating heart of street and, and the kind of metronome of all the things that we're up to. You know, we're, we're posting a lot about the things that we're doing uh, and the way that people can get involved through our social media in particular. Um, and then we probably our largest site... Uh, that people can visit that's um, that is open so some of our sites are still closed but that is open now is our Collingwood site uh, on at 66 Cromwell Street in Collingwood um, and what I love about that site is anyone who comes to visit us and have a meal they'll get to see kind of street in many manifestations because it's not only our training venue for our young people, it's where our office is, it's where we bake the bread that people are going to eat, it's where we're cooking the food, it's where we roast our coffee. So it's it's our food production side as well as very much kind of where we do a lot of our youth impact for young people as well. So, so yeah, people will get a really good sense of us as an organisation by visiting there. But obviously given that we're in a pandemic we've got less people than would normally be able to you know visit the cafe so i'd strongly recommend you know anyone to you know if they want to have a meal they can certainly come in at any time for takeaway but if they want to have a meal to book ahead um and and just jump online and and just ring our number because you know there's a lot less seats in the cafe right now and i i i'm guessing that there's still going to be lost a lot less seats for many months to come as well Oh, and then, of course, the other thing that people can do is um, we've very much kind of pivoted to having a lot of um, our food um, being available online. So, you know, people can jump onto our online shop and, and get a lot of deliciousness, whether or not it's kind of ready-made meals for the freezer, you know, to have ready there. Lots of, you know, home-delivered sort of stuff that people can do too if they're not, um, if they're not quite ready to get out and about to cafes yet
1: no thank you Beck. thanks so much for your time thanks for giving up so much of your story and and you know really being honest with us and open with us and really insightful too i've learned a lot and i hope our listeners have too so thanks so much
0: absolute pleasure matt i've really enjoyed it too and uh one of the reasons i always love having these kind of long form conversations is that that um i always kind of get to learn lots as well so so thanks so much for you for for the generosity of your time too
1: If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.